0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. My son Rowan is three, and it feels like every day we tell him stairs are for walking, not for playing. For some reason, he looks at the stairs and he thinks, This is a jungle gym inside, so I'll just like jump up it or down it or skip or dance or whatever. And just like he comes up with all these weird games to play on the stairs. We tell him, Don't do that, because it's not safe. So every day we're telling him, we don't play on the stairs. He knows the rules. He knows the expectations. He's heard it over and over again. And every time he goes up those stairs or down those stairs, guess what he does? He plays on the stairs. And so I'll tell him, Rowan, we don't play on the stairs. And he'll look at me in his little toddler brain and he'll go, no, Daddy, I'm just whatever it is he decides he's doing. As if his, I'm just, is somehow an excuse to not do what I, or to do what I specifically told him not to do. And then the other day, as he dances himself up up the stairs, he experienced the consequence of doing that, called gravity, and he did not enjoy it. (laughs) That's how sin works. We know what we're supposed to do. We've been told over and over again. We understand it, but when we get confronted with it, our response is often justification, rationalization. No, no, no. It's okay. Here's why it's okay for me to do what God said not to do. Anybody ever do that? <laughs> you can put your hands up. We're not lawn gnomes. It's good. God gave them to you for a reason. They move at joints. It's awesome. So the Bible tells us, commands us, to be in submission to governing authorities. For there is no authority except for that which God has ordained. What that means is that we are called to obey the laws of the land unless those laws directly defy and contradict the laws of God. And one of the laws in our land is a thing called a speed limit. All right, I'm aiming at all of you right now. And just for clarity's sake, in the English language, the word limit is not synonymous with minimum, (laughs) just to make sure we have cleared up that common confusion. But what happens, right? I get in my car, I go driving down Carolina Forest Boulevard, and I suddenly become a civil engineer there's two lanes going in one direction. separated by a median. 45 is unnecessarily slow. The guy that came up with that number is capital D-U-M, dumb. I obviously know better than he does. The speed limit should rightly here be 55. Everybody knows that. So I'm going to go the speed that it should be because he clearly made a mistake in his inferior intelligence. So here we go. Or, my favorite, I will justify myself because I'm going, hey, the speed limit says 45, but like, who has time? Right? I got places to be. I got things to do. Traveling at the safe, legal posted speed limit, again, maximum is what the word limit means, just takes way too long. I need to save 42.3 seconds a month by driving at an unsafe speed. And I'll justify it by telling myself, "Look, I've talked to police officers, and a lot of them say the same kind of thing about speeding. Right? Nine, you're fine. Ten, you're mine. So, I'm like, cool. They don't care up to ten. So I can just—I'll just go like eight. You know, I'm not even gonna like push the boundary. I'll go eight over. That's totally acceptable because even the police officers don't care. As if the only thing that's wrong about breaking the law is that I might get punished by a local authority for it. See how easy sin." Worms its way in. The brilliance of the methodology of sin is to convince us that it is no big deal. Who cares? It's not that significant. It's me telling Rowan, don't play on the stairs and him saying, no, daddy, here's why it's okay. Sin has this clever way of convincing us that it's no big deal. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. So we're going to wrap up chapter 10 today. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews. It'll be an eight-month study by the time it's done. And now we're into the descent. So we begin to close out this book and prepare for the Christmas season. The text today is heavy. And I want to be really clear about this before we get into it. I'm going to lean into the heaviness of the text Not because I'm angry, not because I'm judging, criticizing, or have any desire to guilt or shame any person ever. Because I believe that the best way to love is to teach the Word of God unapologetically for what it says. I'm glad you agree. The subject that we deal with in today's text is sin in the life of the believer. It's not an abstract concept, it's a daily struggle. Something each and every one of us has to face, each and every one of us has to deal with because no matter how much you love Jesus, you're gonna sin. No matter how much you desire to faithfully follow and obey him, you are going to sin. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you're going to sin because the reality of this fallen, broken world is that sin will be a part of our life until our life ends or Jesus calls us home. But what we do with that sin, how we understand and respond to it reveals the condition and the nature of our hearts. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries That's kind of terrifying Because what it sounds like, right, what does it mean? When he says this, it sounds like he's saying that if we continue to sin after receiving Jesus, if we continue in our sins, there's no sacrifice left for those sins. And we become objects of God's wrath. It kind of sounds like what he's saying is that you can lose your salvation. To understand this text, the most important question that we have to ask who is he talking to here? For that, there are three options. Option number one, this is about Christians who continue to sin. I'm not talking about you make a mistake here or there, sporadic, inconsistent, sins of accident, mistake, that kind of stuff, that's obviously covered by the grace of God, but continual sin deliberate sin when you sin knowing it's a sin and you do it on purpose knowing that it's wrong let's and can we just be real honest like what sin in our life isn't on some level intentional but if you sin deliberately and continually the grace of god doesn't cover you the sacrifice of jesus doesn't cover you when exactly that goes into effect is not made clear But the idea behind this interpretation, what it would mean, is that there's a point where Jesus stops giving us grace, that somewhere along the path, Jesus drew a line in the sand and he says, I will forgive you to this point and no further. So there's the fence, stay in the fence, play in the fence, but if you get across the fence, you don't have salvation. And then he graciously, lovingly doesn't tell us where that line is. We just, that it exists. So, as we go through our life deliberately sinning, continually sinning, struggling with addictive behavior or habitual sin, continual sin, right? Because it's not like sin, you know, it's not just like, oh, okay, I sinned over here. and Then the next time I sinned over here, usually we're all susceptible to the same kind of sin, right? There's a couple of areas where we tend to struggle and a couple of areas where we don't. But if you continue to sin long enough if you sin deliberately and willfully enough, every time you do, you get closer and closer to that line. And if you cross that line, you're not saved. That's the idea. What that would mean, if this is what the author has in mind, if this is what he means, what that says is that you can out the grace of God you push it too far, you sin too much, there's no salvation left to cover you. The problem with that is when Jesus talks to his disciples about forgiving 70 times 7, right, the point of that is not do math and multiply them together, it's saying forgive every time, always, constantly forgive. So Jesus is telling us to do something he's not willing himself to do. It means that the grace of God has limits. And most significantly of all, it means the grace of God can fail. Because we're talking about a Christian who continues to sin. Someone who has received the grace of God, received the mercy of God. That is that Jesus covered that person with his blood, covered them with his grace, and then they just sinned so much. He's like, yeah, you know what? You're just a little bit too messed up. I'm going to go ahead and take that back. He offered grace to someone and that person wasn't saved. His offer of salvation failed. This is absolutely, unequivocally not an option. To which we should all let out a collective sigh of relief. (sighs) Because what that means, that this is not what the author has in mind. He's not talking about Christians who are imperfect, which is, you know, like all of us. If you don't think that's you, come talk to me afterwards. You won't like it. <laughs> that leads us to option number two. This is about a Christian who falls away. Now, that is a massively significant theological debate that different groups and camps, based on their system, like to get into. Uh, it's kind of like a theological cul-de-sac. You can spin round and round it, but you're going to end up right where you started. Okay? But it's a big debate. We're not going to get into all of the debate because we're not gonna, you don't have that kind of time. Been going on for like 560 years, so probably not going to solve it in six minutes. But the idea is that someone comes to Jesus, they become a believer, they follow after him, and then life happens, things go wrong, and they walk away. This would mean that Jesus can forgive any sin up until the point of conversion. And then, after coming to Jesus, if we walk away from him, we can never come back. Problem with this interpretation is the pesky little parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. In fact, the point of that parable is so significant that Jesus makes it three times in a row with three different parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, just to make sure we don't miss the fact that this is not an option. And for some of us, this is where we should let out a collective sigh of relief because what this means is if you are a Christian who for a season of your life wandered away from Jesus, you did not jeopardize your salvation for doing so. And that leads us to option number three, that this is a warning against apostasy. Apostasy is the intentional, willful, deliberate rejection of Jesus. Okay, cool. So this is not about Christians at all. Great. Hold on. It's way, way worse than you think. Apostate would be someone who hears the gospel, who understands what it means, and who continues to live their life of sin. They continue to live for themselves, to focus on themselves, to pursue themselves. Their life is unchanged in any significant way by the hearing of the gospel. But apostasy can happen just as easily in the church as it does outside of it. In fact, it's not uncommon. People come in, they hear the gospel. They make a profession of faith. Sometimes they even get baptized. But then, instead of maturing, instead of growing, they kind of lose interest and drift away. But that doesn't mean that they always drift out the doors and going back into open. but it just means that they just don't grow. They sit, but their life looks the same. They stay, but their life looks the same. And you can see it, like there's people that are in the church. You see them on Sunday, and as soon as they walk out the doors, they become a different person. And if you saw them in any place but this room, you'd have no idea that they had any kind of connection to Jesus, because in their heart, they don't. Apostasy is not just angry atheists overtly raging against the gospel. It's a rejection of Jesus that can happen just as much by ignoring him gradually as it can by defying him openly. There are people who sit in the seats, who sing the songs, but never really surrender. Where are you getting this from? Well, Jesus tells this thing in the Gospels, and it's The most terrifying passage in all of Scripture. I tell you the truth on that day. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and perform miracles in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. What that means is that there are people who think they're good. People who think they're covered. People who think they are saved And they have evidence of life and fruit. They have done good work. And they're wrong. There are people who believe they are in right standing with Jesus and they are wrong. Because apostasy is not this one specific type. Apostasy is like a spectrum. That includes anybody from the raging atheist to the apathetic Christian whose entire relationship with Jesus can be summarized by listening to someone else talk about him. That's not a relationship, that's a TED talk. Church, we can't be your only Bible. I cannot emphasize this enough. If the majority of our time in prayer, in worship, and in the Word happens in this room, there's a problem. That's not relationship. That's spectatorship. We cannot be your Bible for you. We can pray for for you, but we can't build a relationship for you. We can't connect you to Jesus. We can't surrender you to Jesus. We can't bond you to Him. We cannot have a relationship with Jesus for you. And it is just as easy to commit apostasy by ignoring the words of God and failing to apply them to our lives as it is by blatantly and openly rejecting them. Both are acts of of willful, deliberate, defiance. And the apostate is beyond salvation because the apostate has rejected the source of salvation. They have ignored the source of salvation, and they have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I told you it was going to get heavy. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture as the one unpardonable, unforgivable sin that can be committed, which of course leads Christians to wildly speculate as to what it is, what it classifies as, and how it works. And we argue and we debate about it because why not do that? Let me simplify it for you. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's different, that's a good thing. (laughs) Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this when you deny Jesus, And you die in that state of active rejection. The purpose of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to teach us that we have this life to decide what to do with Jesus. You have this life and this life alone. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. There's no like, okay, I heard the trumpet, so now I'm gonna call out at the last possible second. You have this life to surrender, this life to receive, this life to belong to him. And that's it. The only sin that God will not forgive is the sin of dying in this state of rejecting his son. The great comfort we have. This text, when you first read it, it sounds scary. It looks scary like, ooh, I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. There's actually a great deal of comfort to it because what this text is saying is if you're a Christian who struggles with sin, You don't have to be afraid that you're going to lose your salvation because you're imperfect. You don't have to be afraid that your struggle and your inability to live a perfect life and to overcome the obstacles in your path is going to cost you your salvation because that's not what this is talking about. If you're a Christian who's wandered in a season of your life, you don't have to be afraid that that wandering is going to cost you your salvation because there's a difference, church, between an apostate and a prodigal. The difference is the prodigal comes home. This is a warning to those who sit on the fence. This is a warning to those who sit in the stands as fans of Jesus, but never become his followers, never surrender, never give their life to him. They hear the word, but they don't do anything with it. They don't apply it. They are not changed or influenced by it. It's a warning that sitting in the seats and calling yourself the right name is not enough to have life in relationship with Jesus. It's not enough. But the beauty of the grace of God is that it is always greater, it's always greater. No matter how big your sin, no matter how frequent your sin, no matter how consistent your sin, no matter what you've done, how you've failed, the mistakes you've made, the shortcomings you have, the imperfections that exist, the insecurity that exists, the struggle that you carry in your life, there is nothing in your life that is greater than the grace of God. It does not matter what you hold up against it, forces internal or external in your life or that surround you, the grace of God is always greater. But the temptation that we have when we hear that, when we understand that is to go, okay, well then, maybe I'll just keep sinning. Right? If I'm saved by grace, I'll just keep doing what I want to do and living how I want to live and enjoying the things of this world because it's not my works, it's grace that saves me anyhow, right? In our wretched, depraved hearts, we can see the grace of God and look for ways to take it for granted. Oh, Jesus says, the one who's forgiven much loves much. So the best way for me to love Jesus is to keep on sinning so I get more forgiveness, right? (sighs) Romans 5. Paul talks about sin in the law. And he says that the law was given to increase sin, which really sounds weird. But what he says is the law was given and until the law came, it was sin that seized the opportunity of the law to bring to life all kinds of wickedness in me because I didn't know what coveting was before the law said don't covet. Now sin has taken that and gone, now I'm going to covet over stuff. So the law exists to make sin, to increase sin. Why? So that grace may abound all the more. but then do we just keep doing it? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Grace is not an excuse to keep on sinning. It is not a justification or a permission to willfully engage in sin. But those who experience it, those who genuinely experience the grace of God are driven into Jesus, not driven further into their sin. So the million-dollar question, how do I know if these verses are about me? Do you love Jesus? I mean, genuinely, not like you say the words, do you love him? That's not about you. Do you desire to see him glorified and honored in your life? And this is not about you. Do you seek imperfectly to fulfill, but seek to obey him, desire to obey him? So when you hear his word and you realize, man, I've not been living up to that, are you convicted to strive to change so that you can honor him in your life? Then this is not about you. This is for those who sit, who warm seats, who hear the word, and are completely unchanged by it. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god this is what's called an a fortiori it's an argument from lesser to greater and the idea is for us to engage our reasoning to understand the significance of something right so if this is true how much more is this true If it is bad for me to intentionally hit someone with my fist, how much worse is it for me to intentionally hit someone with my car? Considerably. So the idea, Deuteronomy 17 says, if someone rejects the law of Moses and does evil in the eyes of the Lord, they are to be put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why two or three witnesses? That's how we avoid becoming the crucible where you got the girl in town that thinks everybody's a witch because they do not like them. She goes, hey, that person, let's kill them. That's how we avoid that. In the Jewish court of law, the testimony of two or three witnesses was considered a valid source of proof. Is it a perfect system? No, there is no perfect system when you're dealing with sin. There is no sin-proof system that will ever be made in this world. But it avoids the whole he said, she said thing. God takes his law, his holiness seriously. And so he says, if there's an accusation made, you need to diligently investigate. And if it is proved, put them to death without mercy. So here's his argument. If those who rejected the law of God were put to death, how much more do you think the punishment will be for those who reject the Son of God? Rejecting God's law, bad. Rejecting his son is so much worse. And so what he's saying here is what we've got is the rejection of the law of Moses leads to physical death. Rejecting the blood of Jesus leads to eternal spiritual death. See, what we fail to understand is that rejecting the gospel is not just some innocent philosophical academic thing. Oh, it wasn't explained right. They just don't understand it. They don't see it. And let me be clear. I'm not talking about rejecting for a season. Every one of us rejected the gospel until the point of our conversion. And to the point where you surrendered your life to Jesus, you were rejecting Jesus. That's how conversion happens. Conversion is when you stop doing that. But we don't have that conversion. Rejecting Jesus is not some light insignificant thing. It is the greatest offense against an infinitely holy, infinitely powerful God. To reject the gospel is to declare that the blood of Jesus is not special. It's to declare that the sacrifice of Jesus is not special. It is to to declare that the cross upon which Jesus died for sin doesn't matter. It is not a light thing. It is not an insignificant thing. Grace comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Mercy comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. So if we reject Jesus, what's left? How much mercy do you think God is going to show the one who rejects the sacrifice of his son? none. To reject Jesus is to reject God's offer of mercy. At which point there is no sacrifice left for sin. The point of this is a blatant rejection of universalism. Right? Universalism, the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe in something, that all religions are just different ways to God, they're all equally valid. Nope. This is a rejection of that. This is, you have Jesus, you have the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the only way, he is the only hope, he is the only sacrifice. So, if you reject Jesus, you have no hope. If you reject Jesus, you have no way. You reject Jesus, there is no sacrifice for you because Jesus is the only means, the only name, the only sacrifice which, by which we can be saved. And if we reject that sacrifice, we receive no mercy from God. And instead, we make ourselves nothing more than the objects of his wrath. Ooh, I don't like that. You said wrath and God in the same sentence. What if there are people who are like not super christian yet, and they haven't been in church for a long time, and that like offends them, and they want to run away because that's scary. It's kind of the point. So one of the greatest problems in the modern church is we gravitate towards a one-dimensional view of God. We want him to be easy to understand. We want him to be easy to wrap our minds around, mostly because we're lazy. We don't want to do the work. But we try to stuff God into a simple little box. And our two favorite boxes are the God of wrath and judgment and the God of love and mercy. So, either God is a great big meanie head who doesn't want us to enjoy anything or have any fun in life and wants to fill our life with guilt and shame and fear, and he's just waiting every day in heaven with a thunderbolt in his hand, waiting, hoping you're going to screw up so he gets to zap you because that is the ultimate desire of his heart because he's kind of a jerk. Or God's a big purple dinosaur. Who wants to give everybody hugs and love everybody and sing songs of love to everybody? Because ultimately, in the end, he's gonna save everybody because he just can't bear to not save someone and have them suffer in hell. So he's just gonna save anyone, ever anyway. Because, you know, why wouldn't a good and loving God put his son on a horrific death on a cross to accomplish nothing because he was gonna save everybody anyway? God doesn't fit in your box. I don't care what your box looks like. It doesn't fit in it. But when we focus, hyper-focus on one aspect of who God is, we make him something that he's not. And here's the thing, church. You don't get to decide who God is. How you feel, what you think, what you believe, What you like or don't like has absolutely zero impact on who God is. God is who God is regardless of how you think or feel about it. But we love to say things like, man, my God's not like that. If your God is not the guy described in this book, your God is a figment of your imagination. Sorry, not sorry. The Bible is God's self-revelation. The Bible is God telling us who he is and what he is like, that we can know and understand him. We don't get to pick and choose the aspects that we like, the attributes that we like. We don't get to go, oh, I want God to be like this, so I'm just going to talk about this. Nope. God gives us, here's me, accept or reject. The thing we don't have an option to do is change. He's not a buffet. You don't get to pick the things you like. And what the Bible teaches is that God is love, and He has wrath. Both of those things exist together. What the Bible teaches is that we will all fall into the hands of God. To those who are covered by the blood of Jesus, we will find those hands to be gracious and merciful and loving, and falling into them will be the greatest experience of our life, and we will enjoy that experience for eternity. But those who have rejected the blood of Jesus, falling into the hands of the living God will be a fearful, horrible thing. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. Remember, the author is writing to a group of people who are facing persecution and struggle because of their faith in Jesus. And he writes to them to say, remember what you've been through. Remember the faithfulness. Remember how you endured before because this is not the first time you've been persecuted. This is not the first time you've struggled. They'd been mocked and shamed and insulted. They'd been beaten and imprisoned and had their property and possessions taken from them. And they didn't just endure, they stood by one another. They rejoiced in their hardship because they knew what they had in Jesus was greater. They rejoiced in their possessions being taken from them because they understood that the less they possessed in this world, the more they could take possession of Jesus. And so the author calls them to remember. Remember where you've been. Remember how far you've come so that you can hold on with confidence to your faith in Jesus. Jesus So life is full of storms. We will all experience them. Some of us are in the middle of a storm right now. And those storms they come in different shapes and sizes. Some of them are financial, others mental, physical, spiritual, financial, occupational. Some of the storms are just kind of annoying some of the storms are absolutely overwhelming. And what we need when we stare down the overwhelming storm in front of us is not an easy button. It's not for God to come down and magically solve all of our problems for us. What we need is to remember. Remembering the faithfulness of God in our past encourages us in the present When we remember, we look back at all that God has done, all that he has delivered us from, all that he has got us through, and it gives us strength to stand firm with confidence against the storm in front of us. What we need is to remember. The Bible calls us to remember over and over again. Right after Noah goes through the flood, God gives him a rainbow to remember Moses. After their captivity in Egypt, they celebrate Passover every year to remember God's deliverance. The Israelites, they set up 12 stones as a remembrance. Jesus, at the Last Supper, converts the Passover to communion, which we regularly celebrate in order to remember. Over and over again, the Bible calls us to remember. Remember the power of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the provision and the deliverance of God so that you can hold on to Jesus with confidence because the storms don't matter when you remember the one who has power over them. Remember and take heart. Verse 37. For yet a little while, And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's getting ready to set up one of the most famous passages in Scripture in the book of Hebrews, the Faith Hall of Fame a whole chapter devoted to remembering the power, the faithfulness, and the miraculous work of God to deliver his people. The point that he makes is Jesus is coming back, and he will not delay. Jesus is coming back, and those who belong to him will persevere in the faith. Those who love him will live by faith. Those who don't will shrink back. But the key to our relationship with Jesus, to our life with Jesus, is faith. It's by faith that we have hope in hardship. It's by faith that we have joy in storms. It is by faith that we can be encouraged and have confidence. It is by faith that we overcome. It is by faith that we are saved. Through faith that we are saved. Faith enables us to receive the grace of God. It is by faith we have hope, by faith that we have peace, by faith that we persevere it is by faith that we leave behind our life of death and sin and by faith that we live the newness of a life in Jesus, it is through faith, it's all about faith and the beauty and the simplicity of the Christian life it is as simple and as complicated as this, have faith in Jesus trust him turn to Him, rely on Him, serve Him. Most importantly, surrender to Him. That you can be molded by Him and that you would grow in Him. Because the rule of life that God has designed is that living things grow. If you have life in Jesus will grow so don't be afraid don't shrink back because our faith and our confidence is in the God who has power over all storms who has power over death and our purpose and our focus is not on how do I get through the storm it's how do I get more of Jesus let's pray Heavenly Father, stir in our hearts a passion for you, an unyielding, unrelenting hunger for more of you that we would never be satisfied with how much of you we have, but that we would seek to grow in you, to know you more, to have more of you, that we might bring you more glory. For those of us in the storm, God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us remember. that we would hold on, that we would persevere, and that we would let our faith shine in the darkness that all may see. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.